0: Pastor John's message this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 20 through 22. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God... You derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Father, I ask now that we would have a keen sense of our condition as slaves of sin apart from grace. And that you would move on this congregation so that Every person is set free from that slavery this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit and the instrumentality of your word. And I ask that on that path, none would fail to obtain eternal life. So, Lord, come. These are weighty, weighty matters. Give a sense of earnestness and seriousness and weight at this moment in this congregation, I pray. Remove all trifling and glibness and grant that we would sense that we stand before the living God and that our life is short and eternity is long and heaven and hell are real. And the matters that Paul takes up here are of infinite importance. So grant an ear to hear, I pray, and guard me from error. Keep me faithful to the Scriptures. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The big picture in Romans 6, the big purpose of Romans 6... Is that the reality of justification by faith does not produce Christians who are cavalier about sin? That's Romans 6. Say it again. The reality of justification by faith does not produce Christians who are cavalier about the reality of sin in their own lives. Or, put it another way, Paul writes this chapter to show why believing in the righteousness of Christ as the ground of our acceptance with God does not produce indifference in us towards sinning, but makes us dead set against Sinning in our own lives. Now let me underline that little last part, our own lives. Because there's not a word in Romans 6 about getting bent out of shape because of somebody's sin against you. Way too much of our emotional energy is invested in that This text is all about my sin, not yours against me. And that's where we should invest most of our emotional energy. In a marriage. As parents. At work. And so don't point any finger doing Romans 6. Stand in front of the mirror of the word of God. The big purpose of Romans 6 is to show why justification by faith always brings sanctification with it. Or as the old time teachers used to say, this chapter teaches why faith alone justifies... But the faith that justifies is never alone. But is always leading to and accompanied by holiness of life. So, even though justifying faith does not produce perfection, as we've seen... It always produces new direction. What's so weighty about this text today is that we will see that this direction is the only path on which you can attain eternal life. Saving faith, justifying faith, dethrones sin, enthrones God and puts us at war with our own bent towards sinning. Now, three things become increasingly clear as we get toward the end of the chapter. They're repeated several times. In this text today, we'll see them clearly. It becomes clearer and clearer toward the end of the chapter that our condition as humans is not just Guilt because of sinning, but slavery to sin because of a corrupt nature. Our condition is not just guilt that needs justification to remedy it by forgiveness and imputed righteousness. Our condition is corruption of soul and heart and mind that finds sin more appealing than righteousness. We are slaves. The second thing that comes increasingly clear as we get toward the end of the chapter is that the only deliverance possible is God's deliverance from this slavery. We saw it last week. This deliverance that we need is decisively the work of God and dependently the work of man. Let me say this again. This is so crucial lest you become imbalanced in your love of the sovereignty of God or your love of the activity of man. Let's say it this way. Getting free from the power of sin is decisively the work of God and dependently the work of man. And both are absolutely necessary. Either left out, you go to hell. Is that clear? Are we balanced? Can we get this together? I cannot not sin. Because of my corruption, I must not sin. And therefore, God decisively liberates me, and I must say yes to that liberation. The third thing that becomes increasingly clear here at the end of the chapter is that eternal life depends on... On that liberation, that sanctification, and not just on justification. In other words, if a person says, oh, I'm justified by faith alone, on the ground of the righteousness of Christ, therefore, I don't need to make war on sin. I don't need to renounce sin. I don't need to present my body and its members to God as instruments of righteousness. That person is probably not saved. Nor Unless they experience deliverance from the mastery of sin, will they inherit eternal life. That comes clear in this text. So let me summarize those three points. Number one, all of us are by nature enslaved to sin. We don't rule sin. Sin rules us. Number two... God alone is the decisive deliverer from this slavery, and our part, which is real and crucial, is dependent on his part. Third, without this deliverance from the rule and the slavery of sin, without this new direction, not perfection, You will not inherit eternal life. Well, do you feel why the ministry is serious to me? Why every Sunday morning is weighty to me? There are no light Sunday mornings to me. We don't do Christianity light. There is no Christianity light, as though the only thing heavy was the day you made a decision. It's light after that. That's not Christianity. Every Sunday, the ministry, and here I mean my preaching, your small group involvement. Why did David and I meet tonight at 7 o'clock with all the Leaders of the small groups. Would you be there? Please, we are not playing games in small groups. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief, leading you to fall away from the living God. That's small group ministry. Your life hangs on small group ministry. Family devotions, are those light only? teaching your children, personal devotions over the Word of God, where you get alone with God and read the Word, pray, is that light, is that icing on the cake of the done deal? Unessential? The answer to that is, all of those things are God-appointed means of grace whereby the triumph of faith gets victory over sin in your life which, verse 22, is going to teach us is essential for eternal life. In other words, the ministry is weighty. Your ministry to your children is weighty. Your ministry to your roommate is weighty. Your ministry to your own soul. Hope in God Oh, my soul! You preach to yourself. That's weighty. You gotta to preach to yourself. You gotta to preach to your kids. You gotta to preach to your roommate. You gotta to preach to your colleagues, and neighbors. This world is weighty. You'll watch the game this afternoon at three thirty. Nothing there will tell you this world is weighty. Be careful with it. Be really careful with it every little advertisement that comes in will be silly will commend materialism as the means by which you can make something of your life and have a happier day don't be deceived everything is waiting now let's go to the text and see these three points as Paul lays them out verse 20 Point number one, verse 20, Romans 6. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So I get my first point from the phrase, you were slaves of sin. It doesn't say some of you were. You were. I was. Everybody is a slave of sin. There are No neutral people. All of us are not neutral. We are slaves. We are not self-determining creatures who stand neutral between two options. Sin was our master until God set us free. Our wills were in bondage to the allurements of sin. Because of our own corruption, we saw sin and it was more attractive than righteousness. We saw the world and it was more attractive than God and that's the way we were and you always do what you regard as more attractive to do and so you were a slave to your own corruption and distorted values. And so, he says, we were free. From righteousness. What does that mean? Righteousness had no appeal to us. Didn't exert any power over us at all. It was quite foolish, stupid, to live that way when you could have this. It didn't look attractive. Didn't look rewarding, and so its appeal was powerless. We were free. Felt so good. Just do what you want to do, and sin. So point one is that we're enslaved to sin; we're slaves. Point number two is found in verse twenty-two, namely, God alone is the decisive deliverer, and our part, which is real and crucial, is dependent on His. Notice the phrase in verse twenty-two having been freed from sin and having been enslaved to God. You see, we don't set ourselves free. We have been freed by another. We said this last week. A passive verbs here. Have behind them the massive work of God. We saw it in verse 17. Thanks be to God you became obedient. You have been freed. You didn't free yourself. You didn't break those chains. God broke those chains. And you have been enslaved. This is what happens when you are under grace. And your sins are forgiven. God comes in. He breaks the power of canceled sin. You know that phrase from the hymn? The theology in that hymn. Break the power of canceled sin. First cancel, justification. Then break, sanctification. And the only sin that can be broken is a forgiven and canceled sin. So justification, here's the whole point of why Paul structured the book of Romans with five chapters on justification before he gets to sanctification. The canceling comes first so that hope can rise, that I'm accepted for Christ's sake and now I can and I will make war on my sin. So he comes in under grace and he transforms by the renewing of the mind. He writes the law on the heart. He gives us a new spirit. He inclines us to the word of God. He causes us to see the beauty of Christ in his ways as the treasure of our lives so that we will not be drawn away by any other treasure. And thus we become... Slaves of beauty, Christ, God. And that's freedom. Freedom. Let me stress here a simple observation. Most of us in the room are Christians. Not all, I'm sure. Most are professing Christians... It's very important that you know how you got to be that way. You won't live as a Christian if you don't know how you got to be one. To know the dynamic of how you got converted, even if you didn't understand it at the time, which you don't have to fully understand at the time. In fact, nobody fully understands what's happening to them when they get saved. But all we need to grow in an understanding of it so that we can live it out Now, here's what did not happen to you. Becoming a Christian does not mean standing neutral before two possible slave masters, sin and God. And contemplating in neutrality and ultimate self-determination, which one you will choose. That's not the way anybody. In this room, got converted. You were locked into one slave master from the day you were born. That's the point of Romans 5. So, let's get a new picture before us. A battleship. 1800. Maybe earlier. King Jesus... Captain, a slave trader ship with you in chains in the hole. Captain, sin. How are you going to get free? I'll tell you how you get free. King Jesus mounts his guns against that ship. And his aim is really good. And he... Takes captive. He commandeers the slave ship, binds the power of Satan, sin, and breaks the chains of the slaves, and manifests his glory and his beauty so compellingly to them that not only are they able to rise up from the slavehold, but they now freely and denture themselves to God forever and ever as His slaves. That's how you got saved. And your job is to say, Yes! Thank you! Thank you! Thank you! I embrace it. I receive it. This is my treasure. Christ's work for me and God's work in me is my hope and my life. Parenthesis. And this parenthesis comes straight out of verse 19. Are you bothered by the imagery of slavery? You should be. Especially in America, right? Where the history of slavery is so woven together with the most demeaning kind of racism. That bears fruit to our own day. We should hear these words of slavery to God and slavery to sin with some discomfort. Because Paul did. Right? Verse 18 is a parallel of verse 22, which we're in right now. Verse 18 says, having been freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. That's the same thing as we just read in verse 22. And then notice how Paul responds to that. He kind of puts in a parenthesis and he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. is that amazing? He's squeamish about this imagery that he's using. He wants to apologize in part for the imagery of slavery. Why? Because In our finitude and our sinfulness, we humans grope for adequate language for great and glorious and complex realities. And there is no adequate language for the greatest realities. And so we settle for the best we can do. Analogies, images, stories, pictures, philosophical phrases. And we have to realize all of them fall short. This one especially. Because there are things about slavery that dare not be applied to our relationship to God. Even though Paul says we are enslaved to righteousness and enslaved to God. Verse 18 and verse 20. Jesus did the same thing. Remember? Chapter 15 of the book of John. Verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I call you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Some aspects of slavery are right to apply to your relation to God. Some are not. Some aspects of friendship are right to apply to your relationship to God. Some are not. Can you make those distinctions? You become a sage when you start making these kinds of distinctions. When you don't just glibly say, "Well, that's a word we'll apply to us and God. And don't think there are some things about friendship you dare not apply to God. You don't hobnob with God as a peer. No way. God is God in heaven. And we are on the earth. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is not mere friendship. But it is. It is. And it is not slavery in all of slavery's connotations. But it is. It is slavery. Well, what 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 peace applies here then? Chapter 6 of Romans, verse 6, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. 22, all of them talk about slavery. It's all over this chapter. You know what it does not imply in any verse of this chapter? It does not imply being forced to do something against your will. Isn't that interesting? That's what we think of as slavery. None of these uses mean that. It implies, rather, that our wills are enslaved. So we think, oh, I'm enslaved. I don't want to go there. I'm made to go there, so I'm a slave. And my will is all this way. That's not the picture in this chapter at all. This chapter pictures... Not me, enslaved, my will free, but my will is enslaved. That's the picture in this chapter. My will is enslaved. I am so corrupt before conversion that my mind and my heart regard pride and money and sex and whatever as more to be desired than righteousness and God and worship. And when you regard it as more to be desired, you do it because you always follow what your will regards as more desirable. And then when you get converted and you're set free and God opens your eyes and you see Christ is more desirable, more treasure, more precious, then your will is now locked in to a new motive. So slavery in this chapter is not being forced to do what you don't want to do. It's having a will that must do what appears most desirable. And it's either sin or God. That's the picture in this chapter. Last point. Our eternal life depends on freedom from sin. Not perfection, but freedom from the mastery, the slavery to sin. Verse 22, let's read. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, or literally, you have your fruit, you're bearing fruit, being enslaved to God, you are now necessarily bearing fruit, Unto holiness or sanctification and the outcome of the goal, the end of that, eternal life. Now eternal life is in contrast to death in verse 21. Notice that. Verse 21. What benefit, what fruit, literally, what fruit were you then deriving From the things of which you are now ashamed, for the outcome, the goal, the end of those things is death. In other words, the result of living in slavery to sin is death. But now verse 22 gives the contrary. The result of being freed from sin, bearing fruit unto sanctification, is eternal life. And those two steps leading to that third are essential. One, freedom from slavery to sin. Two, bearing fruit unto holiness or sanctification and its end, its end, eternal life. You see how serious the fight of faith is? Remember what Paul said to Timothy? First Timothy, six, twelve. Fight the good fight of faith. Anybody know what the next phrase is? Lay hold on eternal life. If you think, say, and act, you don't need to fight this fight. You let go of eternal life. Do you see what's at stake in your fight, young people? At high school, grade school, college... Twenty-somethings, thirty-somethings into the career. Middle age reached it. Wasn't what you thought it was gonna be. New choices on the horizon. Aged. How will we die? You see what's at stake in fighting the good fight of faith? Oh, may you come to the end of your life like Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 8 and say, I have fought. The good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. He never stopped fighting. Not to the very end. Not to the very end. And I'll bet when the lion was coming at him or the sword, whichever it was, he was fighting at that very moment. Oh, Christ Keep yourself clear and beautiful before me, lest I embrace apostasy as more to be desired than this sword. This is so serious. So let me close by saying, we are saved by grace through faith. Real faith. Faith That receives Jesus, not just as a truth, but as a treasure. You are saved this morning by receiving Christ as your treasure. And that faith does two things. It shows itself real in two ways. It leads to justification, and it leads to sanctification. Justification is our legal, righteous standing with God because of the righteousness of Christ. Sanctification is the practical, progressive outworking of that righteousness in a changed life of holiness. Real faith leads to both. So justification is necessary for eternal life as the legal ground or basis of it which we obtain by faith. And sanctification is necessary for eternal life as the public evidence that our faith is real. So, this Christmas, now, look away from yourself. Look to Christ, look to the cross, look to the obedience of the perfect one on your behalf. Look to the resurrection, look to the reign of Christ as the ruler of the kings of the earth. Look to the Holy Spirit poured out upon all those who put their faith in Him. And may God grant that in looking you will see Him compellingly superior to all. Other masters, especially the master of sin. Now, receive the benediction. May the Lord grant you to be freed from the power and mastery of sin in your life. And may you, on the path of a new direction, find the inheritance of eternal life. By grace, through faith, and all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.